Welcome to the Possibility Podcast, hosted by the founders of Possibility, a nonprofit that provides positive opportunities of support for families affected by disability. A podcast for parents just like you, navigating life in the disability community as advocates, parents, and community leaders. And now here are your hosts, Wayne and Tina Cordova. Welcome to the Possibility Podcast, your go-to resource for insightful discussions and positive support for families navigating the disability community. I'm Wayne Cordova, co-founder and CEO of Possibility. And I'm Tina Cordova, co-founder and executive director of Possibility. We're excited to have you with us today as we delve into our own journey, the birth of Possibility, and the Cordova family's personal connection to our mission. Before we get started, We'd like to invite you to support the podcast and access valuable resources related to our episodes. Visit www.donorbox.org slash possibility podcast, where even a small donation can make a big difference. As a nonprofit, every dollar contributes to our mission of providing positive opportunities of support for families affected by disability. And if you enjoy our podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with others. Your support helps us reach more families and continue making a positive impact. Stacy Hoagland is a dedicated advocate and leader in the field of disability rights and empowerment. With over two decades of experience, Stacy has been at the forefront of efforts to support individuals with disabilities and their families in navigating the transition from childhood to adulthood. Throughout her career, Stacy has been a driving force in promoting positive opportunities and support for families affected by disability. She has played a pivotal role in empowering parents, individuals, and communities to advocate for the rights and well-being of those with developmental disabilities. As a facilitator of the Partners in Policymaking program, Stacy has helped individuals with developmental disabilities and parents become community leaders and catalysts for systems change. Her work focuses on teaching advocacy, leadership, and effective policymaking to create meaningful improvements in the lives of Floridians with developmental disabilities. Stacy's commitment to the disability community extends beyond her role as a facilitator. She has also shared her expertise through presentations, articles, and resources, helping families understand their rights, access available resources, and plan for successful transitions into adulthood for their children. With her passion, knowledge, and dedication, Stacy Hoagland continues to be a respected advocate, educator, and supporter of individuals with disabilities and their families, making a positive impact on countless lives. Today, we're going to explore the critical topic of transitioning children with disabilities into adulthood and learn from Stacy's wealth of knowledge and expertise. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's conversation with our special guest, Stacy Hoagland. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us on the Possibility Podcast. We're so excited that you're here. And I am so glad to be here. And I'm so excited just to know that you guys are doing this podcast. I'm sure it's going to help so many people. Well, we're looking forward to it. We knew that we had to have you on when we were talking about potential guests when we were getting started. And so right away, we were like... Yeah, you were at the top of our list. (laughs) Well, I am honored. I don't know. That could could be trouble too. That could be like, oh, she rattles too many cages. So we should probably bring her on and see what she could do. (laughs) We'll have all those follow-up questions afterwards. Right. Well, that's always good to know you have an ally in this uh, this journey too. So (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what inspired you to become an advocate for individuals with disabilities. Well, you know, I, before I, so I have two children and before I had my children, I actually worked for the sixth largest school system in the country. 
And uh, of all places, my very first job was in the budget office. And of course, I didn't even think about that I may need to eventually really need to understand a school district budget. Uh, So I'm one of those people that thinks that everything happens for a reason. So, you know, my path was sort of laid out before me before I even had any idea of where I was going or what I was going to be really um, asked to do. So first I worked in the budget office and then I am not a numbers person. So I only stay, I was hired as a temp and I only stayed there for a couple months and they wanted me to stay, but I did, it's like very quiet in those kind of offices, not a very social environment. So then I left there and I worked in two different elementary schools. And the last school I worked in, what I was something called the confidential secretary. And the confidential secretary is the person who sits with the principal and goes over how the school gets its money, how it kind of captures it in these reports, how it spends its money, the hiring of substitute teachers and teachers in the school and staff and just so many things that really are the things that a lot of people don't even think about when they look at a school. So I kind of learned the ins and outs of a school and how schools operate. And then I wanted to have children. So I was not my intention to work. I wanted to be able to, we saved, we did what we needed to do, so I could be an at-home mom. And my second son, when he was born, we saw some some challenges about uh, a year to a year and a half in, like many stories or, or the stories of many parents, you know, we took him to the doctor. Something is up. we just he didn't um, sort of follow the same path as his brother, who was just 19 months or, you know before that. So it wasn't like I had a big space between kids. I was pretty familiar. Right. Okay, I have one, have the next one, something's up. Uh, but my pediatrician kept saying, "Give it time, give it time." And it was when a friend of mine who I had worked with as a principal came over one night and said, "Something's up. Hmm. He has a lot of characteristics of the children that are in my school." And I go, "I know." And my pediatrician keeps telling me not to give it time. She was like, well, I think you need another opinion. So I had to advocate because my pediatrician was not willing to do that. And so I had to advocate. So that was really my first experience with having to advocate. So I had to advocate. I need somebody else. I need to talk to somebody else. And then five minutes in a neurologist's office, we had a diagnosis. It wasn't rocket science. It was pretty right out there. Now knowing what I know about autism was very apparent. But that same story, he's 28 years old, that same story, we still hear from families. Mm-hmm. And wow. so we spend a lot of time educating families on, you know, the questions to ask and, and, and not if you're getting that no, no, you need to move on. Because if your gut instinct as a parent is telling you that something is up, you need to go with that gut instinct. And then I just what happened to be at, I got really active once he was in school and I got active on different committees and I was sitting at a committee and this person says to me, do you want a job? And I said, no, <laughs> I don't. I'm doing my thing. I got all these therapies. I got all this stuff going on. And she's like, no, it'd just be a couple hours a week. And it was working for Family Network on Disabilities of Broward County. And what started out as five to 10 hours a week lasted for maybe a month. And um, I have been with them for almost 24 years now as an educational advocate. Uh, I'm also the president of the Autism Society of Florida. And I run the Florida Developmental Disabilities Partners in Policymaking Program. And I'm on way too many committees to <laughs> even rattle off. But it's all, it's all, um, I get so much out of it. So a lot of people, you know, there's some people, and I'm sure, you know, like you guys, you know, we get involved in so many things, but it's so rewarding. And I really look at it as something I get to do, not something that I have to do. You know, when, you know, and you say your son's, 28 years old now that you really have ran 
the gamut of, you know, uh, early childhood all the way through school and, and now into a, a adulthood. And so, you know, and that's kind of what we w- wanted to talk a little bit about today is that transition into, into adulthood, right? And, um, and, and all of those, you know, challenges that come in. Yes. And I, I mean, I was going to say, like, we know you through partners in policymaking. So just kind of building that connection and through that experience, we've been able to, again, do some of that advocating and learning how to be a part of certain committees and seeing that um, those changes that occur are, are wonderful. And just that you push, you know, everybody through that partners in policymaking to get involved in everything. Um, but with moving into adulthood, what are some of the, the challenges that parents of children with disabilities face when it comes to beginning that transitioning phase into adulthood? Well, I think that, you know, as parents, uh, our kids don't come with a manual, right? None of them do. And so we kind of have to figure things out as we go. And there's no two humans that are exactly alike. So everybody's path is, of course, going to be their own. And, uh, you know, so I'm always really cognizant of not saying, oh, I know what you're going through because I don't. And anybody who says that to you, you should be cautious of because I hear that a lot from schools. We'll say to a parent, oh, I know. We don't need to do this. We need to do that because I know. Well, nobody knows. Nobody has the answers for you. The one thing that I will say is, you know, and and when my son was young, I heard it from very wise parents and I was like, mm, but I'm here to say, you know, transition, you need to start as early as you possibly can. And people would say, well, when he's five. And I was like, I'm not dealing with that now. I got all this other stuff I'm working on. Um, but really, you really have to think forward because the decisions that you make, especially when the school starts talking to you about removing your child from regular standards. You have to know that that may be appropriate. It's not that it might not be. It might be appropriate. But that one decision will change the trajectory of your child for the rest of their life. And I'm not being overly dramatic. If you are thinking that, you know, you want to maybe wait and see, because we don't know. We don't know how people are going to change. But if you remove a child from regular standards, they are not going to be part of a degree-seeking program in college. They are not, at least today, as of today, they are not going to be able to get a certificate in Mm. trade school, a regular certificate. Now, there are special programs, but we just need to be cautious with the program thing because programs are not regular certification. So if you go to get a job, say, I don't know, as an electrician, let's just say, like an apprentice, you're not going to have the certification that you need in order to get that apprenticeship. Now, might that company hire you? just to kind of do odd jobs and stuff. If it does not require a certification, sure. And they could, you know, they could do that. But I just want people to know that you're not going to be able to get that once you are removed from standards. And again, that is appropriate for some kids, but you just need to be really careful of that. So, so families do need to, unfortunately, that's kind of the, the shtick. You have to be able to think forward. And you cannot, sadly, you cannot depend upon your schools to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Because I sit in many IEP meetings where I sometimes I will hear from the staff that they will say something with with ultimate confidence that is wrong. And a lot of times I'll share something that I know or that I've learned. And before I leave the meeting, the teacher will say, wow, we learned a lot today. So <laughs> you need to, unfortunately, you have to do your own research. You, I, I tell everybody that I work with, no matter if you're dealing with the school system vocational rehabilitation, where we're talking about, you know, jobs and planning or healthcare, you really, it it greatly benefits you to know a little bit more 
than the professionals that you're speaking with. And I know that's really tricky when we get into healthcare, but I'm, I have a doctor's nightmare because I'm Googling everything before I go to a doctor's appointment. <laughs> well, and that's why we have you here too, you know, so that we can get a, a little bit of that edge, you know, when it, when it comes to these meetings. And the, the transition IEP is, is, a, is a little bit different of a concept. You know, could you unpack that a little bit for us when it comes to that kind of planning? Yeah. So in the state of Florida, which is not everywhere, but in the state of Florida, we changed just recently to age 12. Um, in most states, it's age 14. Uh, but it is in federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that there be a transition plan. And so you usually change from an IEP to a TIEP that year in Florida that you're, so it's the year your child turns 12. So they're going to be 11 and they're, they're, they're babies, really. You know, <laughs> just a little, yeah, 11 I'm years old. 12, so. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the emphasis is not for between 11 and 14. It's really just starting to have those conversations, talk about, you know, the purpose of really all schools really are to do two things uh, for all students either to prepare your child for post-secondary education, so trade school, college, or to help them get a job. That's really the, the two purposes of, of the education in general. So you just need to be very cautious that that is what's happening. If you feel like you're sending your kid to school and they're being babysat, it's time to have an IEP meeting and talk about that. And I unfortunately see a lot of that where the IEPs look the same year after year. So that should not be the case. So that transition IEP, again, is supposed to look forward. Those post-secondary goals that schools tend to go really quick over, they're really important. So if you are a trans, if the, those are usually at the very beginning of your IEP. So if it's something, if the goal there says something like, Joey is going to remain living with his parents, does Joey want to keep living with his parents? <laughs> right. Anybody ask Joey if he wants to keep living with his parents? So those, those are conversations that should be taking place. Uh, that often do not. And you're hitting right in that sweet spot because our daughter Emily is 12, and so we're in that same mode now of you know fo- you know thinking about the future and what's up, what's up ahead. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to go off a little bit of of script a little bit because you are emphasizing a lot on those post secondary go- goals, but then you also mentioned coming off of general standards and um, how that kind of changes the trajectory toward getting any type of certification or, or um, diploma or anything like that. So how would a family determine what is right for their child? Like what are some things or uh, to look for, or to think about in making that decision so that we can properly transition them for success for whatever their post-secondary goals are, whether it is to get a job or whether it is to go on to college? Well, I just want to, because you mentioned diploma. So just so that everybody's aware, in Florida, there is no special diploma. Everybody gets the same diploma. Well, I think back, you know, when you went to college, colleges really don't care about your diploma. Right. They want to see your transcript. And so if you if you were off standards in special education, since they're good, they're going to tell you that, you know, you're not going to fit the criteria to be part of their institution unless they have a special program. Uh, again, you just got to know what you're what you're getting. But when when we look at planning for kids futures, they're like I said, they're all going to get the same diploma, but there is really one question that must be a yes to before you remove a child from those regular standards. And it is, is the child's identified intellectual ability? So the IQ is 67 or lower. Mm. So that's really the line in the sand. But 
as we know, many kids with disabilities do really poorly on tests. They may have some really nice skill sets, but they just don't test well. Right. So there are, and school people, parents would have to have conversations with school psychologists who does this testing because there are some evaluations that do a better job than others with kids with disabilities. For instance, there's one called the lighter revised. So they call it the lighter R. That one tends to do a pretty nice job. There's also the DAS. And I always encourage both a verbal IQ and a nonverbal IQ because there's many people out there that when you give them a nonverbal, they're much more apt to score better mm-hmm. on that assessment than if they're required to verbally participate in the assessment. So I just want to make sure that it, it at least feels like an accurate score because a lot of times, for instance, there's one I do not like. It's called the Reynolds. So I can almost guarantee that if a school psychologist used the Reynolds on a kid with a disability, score is going to be in like the 40s and 50s. It's just not, it's just not a tool that I see as beneficial. And uh, I'm sure there's some outliers out there that maybe it is. But if I see that, I almost always will say, "Mm, no, okay, we want another assessment because we want something that's going to more clearly capture this person's potential. And that's really what it's supposed to do. So, um, so yeah, so it's at 67 that you're looking for. Okay. So that's interesting in, in learning, you know, okay, they can be assessed, they can be evaluated, whether they are verbal or nonverbal. So that's always good to know as a parent too, in diving into like your child's IQ can be tested. Don't let the district tell you differently just because they're nonverbal. Um, and then again, creating those post-secondary goals, looking at certifications, what is a CAPE certification and how can that benefit students with disabilities during their transition years? Well, CAPE was something, it's a Florida thing. So mm-hmm. CAPE came about a couple of years ago, and it is the Career and Professional Education Act, right? Yeah, there we go. Um, and it is things like the Microsoft kids in school can get a Microsoft certification. There's different schools that have these CAPE programs like early childhood. You can get an early childhood certification. Uh, there's culinary. There's... Um, Uh, Where my kids went to school, there was an automotive certification. They had a whole thing going on out there in the garage on the school campus. So there are some really amazing. And you can just look on the Department of Education website. It'll give a list. And then, you know, you got to check around with your schools because the school district where I live, the school where my kids went to, they had the early childhood. They had the automotive. They also had one for um, videography uh, and sound editing something something um a lot of them i just i don't i don't know but if you go onto the website the doe website you will see and then you can look to see where those are and you know i will tell you that it is rare sadly that i go to a transition iep so we're talking about you know the older kids particularly the high school there are some capes in element in middle um but mostly where we see them is the high school and it is rare although it is a question on an IEP where that is a yes. So that one, families really need to be prepared to advocate because most of the schools don't even, they they brush over that question. They Most of the time, they don't even, even with me sitting there, they don't ask the question. They just, well, they just skirt by it. They don't even pay attention to it. And for many, many of the people that we're talking about, the, those fields are First of all, they're so needed. I mean, yeah. there's so so many people that we need in those fields. And how fabulous would it be to come out of high school? You already have a certification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe you don't go to college, but you already have a certification and you could go on and look for apprenticeships and things like that. 
Uh, but it is often, mostly, actually, most of the time, it is not even a consideration in one of these meetings. So families need to know about it so that they can go into it going, you know what? I heard about this program and my kid loves, I have a girl who uh, is at a school that has a, um, it's the veterinary assistant certification. And that would be fun. Nobody had told her about it. Just somebody in the family happened to fall upon it. And the school was, no, 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 no. You know, because the school was thinking this was a pre, I'm going to be a vet. Right. And this doesn't have the interest or the ability to really go on because, you know, when you become a vet, you're a doctor. I mean, that's a lot of education involved in that, um, you know, college. And she's not, she's just not that kind of person that would be able to invest the time and the energy and what it would take to become a doctor. But she does have a lot of the skills to be a veterinary assistant. And so mom had to advocate. She got her into the program and she, she got the certification. She went on, she, she was offered a job before she even left because the job training part is part of it. So she was on doing on the job training and the, the vet, the vet that she did her on the job training with offered her a job. So coming out of high school, she already was employed. That's awesome. That's incredible. Are there any other specific resources or programs that you'd recommend for parents who, who want to learn more about those, those type of transition planning and services? Well, um, again, in Florida, we have something called Project 10. Mm-hmm. It is fully funded by the Florida Department of Education. And uh, the, it's amazing. I mean, there's so... You guys could just go... It's probably project project10.org, I would think. Uh, maybe not. It might be e.edu. We'll make sure to add these links in the show notes too. Okay. All right. Great. Because um, Project 10 is fabulous. There's also the Pacer Center. That's that reaches beyond Florida. So especially if you're thinking about, you know, more, more global to look at the Pacer Center, um, think college. So think college is great because it's not just uh, thinking college for kids who are on regular standards, but also if you're somebody who's interested in looking at colleges that have off regular standards, kind of special programs, yeah. mm-hmm. um, more and more colleges are having those because, you know, everything's. It's money, right? Every, every Money drives it. And so there is more money going into universities that have these programs that are jobs training programs for people with disabilities who are not on that regular degree track. And then there's APSI, um, which we just actually heard about um, at our Partners in Policymaking program. And that's the Association of People, uh, or, ooh, I'm going to mess up, but it's Employment Supporting supporting employment first, something like that. Yeah, it's the Employment First Initiative in Florida, and it is uh, supported by the governor and much of the state legislature. So again, when you get political push, you it's the money follows. Right. So, so all of these resources, looking at the transition IEP, creating goals and things. Um, so I'm just going to kind of roll into... Um, self-determination and how do we as parents understand or the role of self-determination and in, in, in playing those transitions or how do we kind of guide our own children to know what those choices are to know what they're you know what they want in their future or you know whether verbal or nonverbal how do we kind of invest the time and you know understand what our child wants or how do we help them achieve those goals or understand what they want? Well, so I'm going to start with two things. The, I've been doing this a long time. So my I have students that start with me at three years old as they enter the system and I watch them graduate. So I've, I've 
that, you know, I get that benefit to be able to see what actually was beneficial, what type of education was beneficial into what I consider best outcomes. So best outcomes, of course, would be somebody who's pretty well adjusted, fairly happy, mm-hmm. not the kid who's punching holes in walls. And I always say that, you know, if somebody's punching holes in walls, they're not happy, not a happy person. <laughs> right. So, you know, those behaviors, you know, behavior is communication. And so people need Absolutely. to pay attention to that. And so being able to get those best outcomes. So having a job, having what, what you desire for your life um, comes through two big things for me um, when they're little. So one is I'm a massive inclusionist. So I very much believe in inclusive education and being included in your communities. I didn't start that way. I always thought that, you know, inclusion was good for some people. Well, now I'm <laughs> I'm like, no, no, all people, you know, so um, and to whatever degree, you know, is appropriate for that person. So I don't want people to think, you know, that I think that a kid who has a lot of challenges should be included in regular education 100 percent of the time, because chances are good that that kid does need some special education. But does that kid need to be in that program down the hall, other building over there all day, every day? I'm probably going to say no for basically every human being, because I just think segregation is bad. I think we have lots of evidence of that mm-hmm. in the history of our country. I don't think I, you know, that needs a lot of coercion to, to, you know, to tell people about that. But anyway, so as much as is appropriate, I always think that kids should be included with their typically developing peers. So that's that. Um, but then also the other big thing is, and, and, you know, when you have a young child who doesn't verbally communicate, for example, you're going to pour your resources into speech therapy. Because you want that for your child. You want them to be able to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did that. I get that. But I don't want parents to forget about whatever, um, you know, being able to be part of, I don't know, if you've got a kid who's on the move all the time, then maybe tap, ballet, gymnastics, uh, soccer, things that you're always moving your body. You're always up and around. Um, if you've got a kid who's creative, art classes. I've got kids who do not use their hands, but they are amazing artists when they get to use a brush held between their teeth. So don't make the assumption that because your kids have these limitations that you happen to see, that they can't achieve what they dream or that they wish. But you don't get to that end if they don't have the opportunities to try things. And so I just always encourage families that, yes, I get the whole therapy thing and trying to help your kid, you know, tutoring and all that get to that next level. But don't forget, we don't, you know, when we're, when you're my age, you don't think back about all those tutoring sessions. They were fabulous. You know, you're (laughs) thinking about what you got to do with other kids and, and who you played with and, and playing kickball in the street. I mean, that's the stuff that we remember as adults. So don't, don't withhold those memories from your children, because you're so focused on the other stuff. And I will tell you that it's in those activities that we meet people who maybe one day offer us a job. Um, it's, it's the people that are going to, we're going to build our relationships with the people that are going to help us get to that next step in life. And so, you, you know, from, from very early on, you have, that's when you're thinking about transition. And again, those best outcome situations are the people who get to really do life with everyone and not in that separate place over there. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of um, adults that I know with disabilities that if I ask them who their friends are, 
they'll give me a name or names. And oftentimes those names are their care providers. And those people can be there today and gone tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I see it happen all the time because, and they don't like to hear this, but that's a job for them. Right. They might be friendly to them and they might even be considered friends. But if that person is offered a better job, they're going to go. And so making sure that you have a well-rounded life, that you have those providers in your life, you also have friends. And there's lots of people out there who want to be your friend. <laughs> but, you know, I tell people all the time to, to um, have friends, you have to be a friend. And mm-hmm. I encourage schools all the time on helping kids develop the skills that they need to be a friend. Because that's, it's tricky. And most of us learn how to be a friend just through we make a mistake, right? We, we take a friend off and then we know, okay, we're not doing that again because look what that just did. But when you have a disability, you may not notice that. And, and then you just keep repeating whatever that is. And then you end up not, you know, not having friends. And again, friends are how most of us, 65% of Americans obtain their employment by somebody that they knew. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have a group like your posse, um, that's going to affect you across the board. It's going to affect you in your happiness and it's going to affect you in your job and your job potential and the way that you live. It's really important. You know, we, um, I think it's safe to say we need to have Stacey back and to, you know, keep having more conversations like this because uh, this has been incredible. I, we have, we have time for a couple more, you know, questions. And I think, you know, one of the things that for us that, that we end up dealing with a lot is just that, you know, I want my child to thrive. I want my child to, you know, have everything she's ever, you know, hoped or dreamed of. But as a parent, I also get stressed out and nervous about all this, you know. And so, what's the best advice that you would be able to give to parents who may be just overwhelmed about this transition journey, you know, and you know, being that champion, you know, for for their child in in, in this situation? Well, I'm gonna kind of wrap a piece of what I probably should have said a minute ago to the previous question into this one. In Florida, there is something, there's a curriculum called the Standing Up For Me curriculum. Hmm. All of your schools have it. Now, whether they're using it or not, I can't say. (laughs) But I can say that many of them, when I bring it up, they're like, what? We have what? So the Standing Up For Me curriculum is so fabulous. And schools have it. So really, when a parent is really freaking out, like, oh my goodness, how am I going to deal with this? I want you to know that the law is on your side. So in that Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, it's uh, 300.43 is the section. And in there, it says transition. It says it protects your rights in order to get that plan created for post-secondary. So what's happening after they graduate? So that is in the law. So you have that. You have the standing up for me curriculum. So with those two things alone, just those two things, you have protections under the law and you have a... Uh, like a, a pathway. Mm-hmm. So it, it teaches uh, self-advocacy. It teaches uh, good, you know, how to use your communication skills that you do have into obtaining, you know, and even deciding, you know, a lot of kids, and I am guilty, have parents who are making all the decisions. And so just think about when you're making all the decisions for your kid, your kid's going to grow up to be an adult who cannot make a decision. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about basic. I'm talking about, do you want to see this movie or that movie? There are many adults that I know who who just the thought of having to make a decision of one movie over another is stress inducing. <laughs> that should not be the case. But it is when we do not provide opportunities for these people when they're younger 
to make decisions, then why would they become an adult who knows how to make a decision when you've always made the decisions for them? Love that. So making sure that you're teaching your kids, giving them the opportunities to make decisions, because that's what adults have to do every Mm -hmm. day. And it doesn't matter who you are. And you want your child to become an adult who can make a decision, even if they need a ton of support around them as adults. We still want them to know that they have the right to be able to say when something doesn't feel right. And if you don't help them with that, you could potentially be setting them up for unsafe situations. You want them to be able to advocate, to be able to let people know when they don't feel safe. And it could just be a feeling. That's we all, you know, how many times are we walking somewhere and we don't feel safe? We don't know that we're not safe, but we just get a weird vibe. And we want our kids to grow up to be adults who who have that same intuition so that they can then know, oh, I've learned those advocacy skills and standing up for me. And I know when I feel this way, I can talk to this person, I can say that, or I can do whatever I need to do to keep myself safe. And so without those, being able to teach your children when they're younger, some of these skills in self-advocacy are going to help them. And it's going to help you because it's going to reduce your stress Mm -hmm. because you're going to have a better feeling that, okay, I am now really preparing them for a lot, you know, we spend a lot more time, those of us who are blessed with a long life, um, with a lot more years as an adult, we have like a, we have a window as children uh, to set ourselves up for, I don't know, potentially 80 years. If you live to be 100 years old, you can spend 80 years as an adult and you only get those 20 on the front end to prepare for. <laughs> right. That's kind of scary um, (laughs) to even think about. But just a few things. I'm just going to, we're going to wrap up here. And I just want to say, Stacey, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. And you have so much insight and so much information to share and resources. Um, But I just kind of want to reiterate for some of the parents that just some of like three things that I, I learned and grabbed from our conversation today was really to just kind of get ahead of the ball and research, know what you're talking about, kind of know what resources are out there, providing your child experiences. I think um, as parents, we really need to learn to kind of let go a little bit, (laughs) almost like let go, let God, just trust that God's got your child, Um, give them the opportunities uh, to really build experiences um, and allowing them to be included. I love how you said both in education and in their community, because we as possibility, that is a goal of ours is breaking down barriers within the community as well as in education and just providing opportunities where all kids can be a part of, you know, events and programs and things like that. And then the other thing is just kind of being aware of what your child wants. So through those experiences and through those opportunities, is just kind of being aware and providing them the opportunity to choose, to make choices on their own and building that independence. So I think that those are three great takeaways from today. And I know there's so much more to dive into. So I hope, and this is an invitation, that you'll come back and join us again and share even more on this topic or maybe even more on other topics that you've learned through your journey and your experience. But Stacey, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you do? And I know you also are doing some advocating and I think you have a resource that you've written recently and and published. So how would they find that information? Yeah, I mean, they could just go to, I try to keep a lot of stuff that I do. It's really simple, just Mm -hmm. stacyhoagland.com. And I try to like, I usually every week I'll 
I'll blog something. So there's new, be a new blog on there. There's also links to a couple of videos that I've done, just some like training stuff. And I try to post as much information there as I can. Uh, so that's the easiest way. But if you Google my name, I think a lot of these things will come up. So you'll be able to capture some information. And I, I always encourage everybody to apply for the Partners in Policymaking Program because that's where you really kick it into the weeds a little bit on so much of this stuff and, um, and be, be, become a, a partner, right? So you're with other people that are walking a similar walk and we learn so much from other people. I, I, you know, every single day when I go to IEP meetings, I learn something new. So it's, I would, you'll never hear from me. Oh yeah, I got that. I know. Cause I don't, I, I learn something new and I try to, as, as an, as an advocate, I, what I really love is when I go to a meeting, like just yesterday, I was at a meeting and there was a dyslexia specialist there and so much for her. And so then I'm able to carry that with me onto the next meeting when I happen to be in a similar situation. So I'll be able to say, oh, I learned this and I can share it. So I want to offer just one more really quick thing. There was a woman in the partners and policymaking class about uh, no, five or six years ago, and she was a self-advocate. And there were a lot of concerns that were coming up from the group of parents in the class about being scared, being scared and, you know, not knowing what to do and in fear for, you know, what was just like the future and bullying and just all these things. And I was sitting in the back of the room and she looked at me and she said, can I say something? And I said, yes, of course. And she said to the group, I am self-advocate. And that means that when I was going through school, it was hard. It was hard. Uh, The academics were hard. Social interactions were hard and I had to struggle with basically everything. But I would not be the advocate I am today and in this room and advocating with the state legislature and with schools and with local government if I had not had those experiences. Mm. So while we might think that we protect our kids, Mm -hmm. she was clearly, you know, she shared her story so beautifully about, yeah, it was hard, but life is hard. Yeah. And just how it all those experiences helped to shape her. So while, you know, it is important to protect our kids as much as possible, we also need to allow them to feel it sometimes when it's really hard Mm -hmm. because you do not make things better long term when you shelter them from having to at least feel a little bit of how difficult things need to be sometimes. Because I don't know about you guys, but I definitely learned lessons a lot quicker when it goes south and I got to pick up my marbles and throw them back in the bag Absolutely, and figure out how to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, we learn very, very quickly when it hurts, I think, or when we're stretched out of our comfort zone. And so the same thing for our children as well. Stacy, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, we look forward to having you back. All righty. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Possibility Podcast. We hope you found our conversation with Stacy Hoagland enlightening and inspiring. Stacy's wealth of knowledge and dedication to the disability community is truly remarkable. We want to remind you that Possibility is a nonprofit organization on a mission to provide positive opportunities of support for families affected by disability. Our impact programs and events such as Kids Club, Parent Recharge, Creative Possibility, and our community support groups are designed to make a meaningful difference in the lives of families like yours. If you'd like to support our podcast and the work we do at Possibility, 
please consider making a donation, no matter the amount, at www.donorbox.org slash possibilitypodcast. Your contribution goes a long way in helping us fulfill our mission and provide valuable resources to families in need. And don't forget to subscribe, review, and share our podcast with others. Your support helps us reach more families in the disability community, and we're truly grateful for that. So until next time, remember that there's more to possibility than just this podcast. To learn more about what we do, visit www.possibility.life. Thank you for being a part of the Possibility community. We look forward to sharing more stories, insight, and resources with you in the future. Stay connected, stay positive, and keep advocating for your loved ones. Take care, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Possibility Podcast. Possibility Podcast.